Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 15. Here we begin a second round of speeches, and once again, Eliphaz goes first, suggesting that he was the oldest or perhaps the most respected of Job's friends. In this round of speeches, it is even more obvious that the friends are not just speaking to Job, they're also speaking to an unspecified number of people listening on. Most of the commentators make mention of the fact that several of the speeches seem clearly designed to educate the crowd more than to comfort Job. And that parallel agenda is very evident in this speech. Eliphaz is deeply concerned with the potential public impact of Job's argument thus far. If Job's more complex and nuanced understanding of providence were to be widely adopted, Eliphaz fears that the motivation for proper conduct among the people will be significantly undercut. He sees Job now as not just a man processing pain, but as a dangerous agitator against the cause of right religion. And he tries desperately to build up again the moral infrastructure that Job's arguments have attacked and to some extent thrown down. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Eliphaz here chastises Job for making an argument that a man of his stature really ought not to be making. Ideas have consequences. And this line of reasoning, followed to its logical conclusion, has the potential to radically undermine the cause of right religion. Verse 4 reveals the heart of Eliphaz's concern. He says to Job, you are doing away with the fear of God. Eliphaz believes that if the direct link between the sinful act and the punitive response is threatened in any way, then one of the main motivations for good behavior will have been removed. In street-level English, Eliphaz is saying that people only obey God if there's something in it for them. They they only avoid bad behavior when they're afraid of being punished. If, If you start suggesting that the universe is wired in some other way, you are inviting anarchy and all-out bedlam upon planet earth. You're being very selfish here, Job. In trying to justify yourself, you're in danger of bringing the whole world down around your ears. And besides all that, anyway, you're wrong. You're you're out on a limb here, brother. I mean, do you really think that you have discovered the secret reality of the universe? Come on, Job. If what you say is true, someone would have made that argument and proven it at some point long in the past. That's where he begins to go in verse 7. Are are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you 
listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water? In these verses, we encounter a very important distinction between the perspective of Job and the perspective of his friends. Both Job and his friends agree that God is majestic and sovereign. Furthermore, they agree that his purposes and ways cannot be easily perceived or understood by mortal beings. They also agree that human beings are small and lowly creatures compared to their creator. But here is where the difference appears. Francis Anderson puts it this way. While agreeing that men are fragile and dirty, Job nevertheless thinks that people are precious to God. Eliphaz goes to the extreme, dismissing man as abominable and corrupt, closed quote. So Zophar in chapter 11 says that God is inscrutable, and Eliphaz here says that man is abominable. And the net result, of course, is that the gap between God and man simply cannot be bridged. Therefore, any attempt to understand or to discuss anomalies is just so much arrogant bluster. But Job contends that human beings are precious to God. They are exalted creatures. They are meant to understand. They are supposed to relate to God. Not just to work the system. Job thinks that God can be known, hence his desire for an audience. And he thinks that he might just be precious enough to God to receive what he has requested. Now, that just might be the most important theological difference between Job and his friends. Calvin said in the introduction of the Institutes that all knowledge comes down ultimately to understanding two things. Who God is and who we are. And here we perceive a subtle difference in how Job understands those two things as compared to his friends. And the subtle difference there explains why they cannot agree on how to make sense of Job's extraordinary suffering. The friends are saying, God is inscrutable, and you are an ant in his perfectly moral habitat. So just shut up and do what we know will result in the restoration of your good fortune. We can only know how the machine works. We can never hope to deal directly with the maker. But thankfully, the friends argue, the machine is good. And it always does right in the end. That's where Eliphaz begins to go in verse 17. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare. What wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man wreathes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. 
Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield because he's covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist and has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree for the company of the godless is barren and fire consumes the tents of bribery they conceive trouble and give birth to evil and their womb prepares deceit eliphaz answers job's contention that the prosperity of the wicked proves that we do not always reap what we sow in this life Sometimes good people are poor. Sometimes wicked people get rich. Not so, says Eliphaz. Just wait and you will see. A wicked person may become rich, but he will never stay rich, right? Those are just blossoms, but he will drop those blossoms. You just watch and see. Look at verse 29. His wealth will not endure. Eliphaz argues that the wealth of the wicked is like a house of cards and will certainly come tumbling down. So you just have to be patient, Job. Things do work out justly in this life, and people always get paid what they're due. Look at verse 32. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. Now again, this is where we have to sort through these speeches very carefully because just about everything Eliphaz says here is true up to a certain point. It is true that ill-gotten wealth tends to be lost about as quickly as it is gained. Just consider the present financial status of most rap stars from the 1980s, right? Easy come, easy go is a contemporary proverb because it is almost always true. The tech bubble of 2000 or the financial crisis in 2007-8 make basically the same argument. If you didn't earn it the right way, then you are likely to lose it in fairly short order. Your sin will find you out. All that is true in almost every situation. Proverbs 11.18 makes that point. The wicked earns deceptive wages. But one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Wealth earned the wrong way is unstable, says the Bible. It is here today and gone tomorrow. That is true. But it isn't all that wisdom says about the relationship between righteousness and wealth. 
It is certainly true that a majority of the Proverbs on wealth espouse basically the same view as Eliphaz does here, that good behavior or wise conduct leads to wealth and bad behavior, wicked conduct leads to poverty, either immediately or eventually. Proverbs 3, 33, for example, says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. But that's not all Proverbs says. In Proverbs 13, 23, it says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but it is swept away through injustice. So sometimes the moral equation of the universe is affected and interrupted by external agents. Robbers can break in and steal, and governments can fail in their obligations to provide a level playing field. And as a result of things like that, sometimes things don't work out in practice the way that they theoretically should. Even the book of Proverbs understands that. But Eliphaz here is doubling down. He is insisting on an unnuanced view of the world in which people always get what they deserve and in which people always reap what they sow, even if you sometimes have to wait a couple of turns around the board to finally observe that. The game does work if you just let it do its thing. But Job isn't letting the game do its thing. That's the heart of Eliphaz's concern. Job is not trusting the process. And in his foolish and selfish efforts to vindicate himself, he threatens to undermine public confidence in the system. Now, remember, there is an audience for this conversation. Job is speaking to three other wise men, renowned, world-famous wise men, about his situation. But we know that other people are listening in. In fact, one of the young men from the crowd will speak near the end of the book. So we know that Eliphaz is not just speaking for himself. He is speaking here out of a concern for the public good. Job, he says, you are dealing in dangerous propositions here. If you threaten this relationship, what will motivate people to do what is right and to eschew that which is evil? Is your personal vindication worth tipping over the whole apple cart here? That's the thrust of Eliphaz's speech. He has a wooden view of reality and a social conservative's trust in the essential goodness of the regime, and he is willing to suppress the facts in order to protect it. Job must be a sinner. He must be declared a sinner. The reputation of the machine hangs in the balance. Job, however, cares less about the reputation of the machine and less about the maintenance of public religion and more about his relationship with God. Job will not settle for the company line. He will not eat his fortune cookie and suffer silently. Job wants to know God, and so he presses on. He answers Eliphaz, and he keeps searching for the truth. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 